Hello, welcome to the Public Procurement Podcast with me, Pedro Telcho. The topic for today's program is defense procurement, and I'm delighted to have as a guest my good friend Baudouin Unnux, Chief Counsel of the Belgian Armed Forces Procurement Division and a part-time academic at the University of Nottingham, and also the Belgian Royal Military Academy. He has just published a book on defense procurement as of November 2016, entitled The Law of Collaborative Defense Procurement in the European Union. Hello, Baudouin. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Pedro. Good evening. I'm going to start by doing something that I usually don't do, is tell a story about the guest, in this case, you. So, for the benefit of the listeners, both myself and Bode did our PhDs in law pretty much at the same time at the University of Nottingham. And I remember one day having a conversation with our supervisor, Professor Sue Aerosmith, about supervision of PhD students. And she was very adamant that a PhD was a, a program or a project that needed to be done full-time, and she was never very keen in taking part-time PhD students, but there wasn't one exception. And there was this guy who worked for the Belgian military and I think did not have a legal background, but actually has a very keen interest in studying law and doing research into law. So she was very relaxed into having as a part-time PhD student that particular person, in, in this case, Baudouin. And I'm not aware that she has had any others ever since. So Baudouin, starting By that story, how did you end up doing a PhD in public procurement law? Well, actually, at the time, I was working for an international organization being detached from the, uh, the Belgian Armed Forces. And I was finishing a master's degree in EU law and writing uh, uh, my final essay on public procurement. And I was asking myself, why does that organization I'm working with uh, or working for not apply the EU public procurement directives. At the time, there was no defense and security directive, but there was still the, the 2014 directive. And I asked a number of people, including the legal advisor of the organization, and I didn't get any satisfactory answer. Actually, at some point, he told me that As my job was not dealing with legal issue, I had to stop bothering him. Um, <laughs> and I started asking that question to other people working for other international organizations, and I never got any satisfactory answer. So usually when you're asking a question and you, you don't find anyone who can give you an answer to the question, that's a good topic for a PhD, I think. That is correct. However, you don't have a background in law, so you did the master's in law, but that was pretty much it, am I correct? Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm an engineer to actually to start with. That was almost 10 years ago. I think we started our PhDs more or less yeah. at the same time, 2007. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you did your PhD and you kept on working first at that international organization and then back into the Belgian military or the Air Force. Yeah. What led you then to afterwards actually writing a book about defense procurement in the European Union? Well, the funny thing was that on the topic of my PhD, I was thinking that, yeah, I would just start by reading the existing literature on the procurement rules of international organizations. And I didn't find anything. Basically, there is a lady in Italy that has done a PhD on that topic at about the same time as us. But Next to that, there's basically nothing. So going further than that, if you have a question nobody can answer, you can do a PhD on it. 
And if when doing your PhD, you realize that there's basically no literature dealing with the, the specific topic of your PhD, it's worth making a book about it. So you had the idea of doing this actual book while we were still doing the PhD? About the end of the PhD, yes. Yeah, let's say that the last year. I did it in four years, part-time. About the last year of the PhD, I really had the, the idea that a book was useful. And what are you trying to achieve with it? Well, first of all, to try to raise the awareness of the uh, people dealing with those large collaborative procurement programs in defense sector, you know, those when a number of countries decide to buy together some piece of equipment, fighter aircraft or battleship. Because I've realized that the legal background or the legal structure of those programs has never really been subject to a model or to an analysis. So to try to get some structure, get some order into what people are, are doing in all these, all these uh, programs. And in terms of, of findings, what did you find when you're doing that kind of work in that kind of analysis of the, let's say, collaborative procurement projects in, in Europe in the, in the field of defense? Well, first of all, that not many people are actually asking themselves questions about what legal background and legal structure is applicable to those programs. And actually, it's quite complex because you have national law or domestic law that rules the, the decision of the member states or of the participating states to participate in the program. Obviously, that's influenced by EU procurement law, but that relationship is not that clear. And then you have the relationship between the state that participates in the program, and that's in public international law. And then you have the procurement rules of the organization or the, uh, the entity managing the program itself. And that can be public administrative, uh, public international institutional law, or that could be domestic law influenced by European law. So that's really, a, let's say, a, a nexus of domestic law, international law, and EU law. Uh, and it's quite complex, and not many people are actually aware of that complexity. That makes perfect sense in terms of what you've just described, because every time I talk with people that in an area that has nothing to do with defense, let's say normal procurement, they think about doing collaborative procurement themselves. And I just always ask myself, okay, right, so you want to do some procurement with another organization in another member state, what rules will apply. So it's going to apply the national rules of your country, national rules of the other country, EU rules, international law. It just becomes very, very complex very quickly. So in the field of defense procurement, how are those issues solved? <laughs> um, basically, I don't think many people have been asking themselves the question. As long as each country follows its internal law and regulations in deciding to participate in a program, I don't think many people ask themselves the question if what is going further, especially the procurement rules of the organization, if they are, let's say, in accordance with EU law or if they should be in accordance with EU law. I think that people are getting a little bit more sensible or sensitive to that topic. But yeah, that's still an open issue, I think. Why are people getting more sensible or sensitive to that topic? First, because people are starting to talk about it. 
Mm-hmm. The fact that I'm making regular presentations and writing articles on the issue is yeah, raising the awareness of people about what they're doing. And second, because the EU, especially in the field of defense, the European Commission is more and more uh, trying to close all the loopholes that were allowing the EU member states to do a little bit what they wanted within the the defense sector. But they still pretty much can do what they want. I mean, looking at the the Directive 2009-81, the limitations imposed on member states are fairly light and flexible in comparison with, say, the the General Procurement Directive Directive 2014-24. That's true. And that was one of the reasons why the Defense Directive was adopted, because there was a view from the member states and from the defense industry that defense was too complex to have strict rules to be followed, like open procedure, restricted procedure, and that more flexibility was to be allowed. So what did the commission? The commission gave them a directive that gave them that flexibility. Now, obviously, or maybe it's not so obvious, but one of the reasons why the member states wanted flexibility was to award defense contracts to their domestic industry. But obviously, they could not say that. No. So, (laughs) 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 So, yeah, so as I wrote in, in one of my articles, actually, it's a kind of trick or threat game between the member states and the commission. Member states said, we want more flexibility. The commission said, we give you more flexibility, but then you have still to comply with the principles of non-discrimination, equal treatment, transparency, and so on. So the commission is actually waiting for very obvious cases of, let's say, breaches of EU law to uh, send EU member states or some EU member states to the Court of Justice and make its point that defense procurement has as a general rule to follow EU law. And do you think the practice has changed ever since the directive came into force and has been transposed into national law? Huh. I think it has changed somewhat, but you still see a number of EU member states that are basically, well, Applying the directive for everything that's for all procurements that's small or uh, not extremely significant or not extremely sensitive, but for major procurements, uh, they are still using the uh, the exemptions of the uh, EU treaty, like Article 346, to still either buy from their uh, domestic industry or to ask for the uh, infamous or famous offsets, industrial return in their countries. So it's 2016, almost 2017. Are offsets still a thing in defense procurement today in Europe? Yes, yes, really? absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on the other hand, it's a little bit, it's understandable because I'm not saying that it is legally acceptable. That's another issue. Mm-hmm. But from a political point of view, it's understandable because if you're buying warships, and it's a program that cost billions of euros. And next to that, we're telling the the public that we need to tighten social security, reduce benefits, those kind of things. Uh, how can you make them accept those kind of big military expenses if you cannot tell them at the same time, and by the way, it will create that many hundreds or thousands of jobs in, in the country? 
So from a political point of view, it's a very sensitive issue. And it's basically almost impossible, especially in medium or small member states. It's almost impossible to justify to the general public that you're spending that much money without any return in country. And that's something that the European Commission, for instance, or some academics have some difficulties to understand. It's true that if you look at it from a purely legal point of view, it's true that those kind of offsets or return are clearly against EU law, unless you can justify them with with the uh, Article 346 exclusion. But from a political point of view, they are, it's difficult to do away with them, actually. Okay, I find that very interesting because the impression I have is, by and large, offsets do not work and certainly do not work as intended. And that is the best case scenario, um, but please do correct me. And the worst case scenario actually is that offsets work as vehicles for corruption. I'm not necessarily only talking about Europe in this particular, I'm talking about defense procurement in general. Yeah, you're, you're actually mostly right there, Pedro. It, offset can work in some cases, mm-hmm. um, but it's true that especially, let's say outside of Europe, if you don't have the adequate industrial base to actually perform the offsets, then it's very hard to make them work. On the other hand, and I will be a little bit cynical there, um, <laughs> the, I'm not entirely sure that the governments actually care about aim the offsets. for offsets yeah. to work. If they work, so much the better. But what they must be able to do is to make a big announcement at the time mm-hmm. of the launch of the program that there will be offsets. Yeah. And whether or not they fully work is something that comes down in the years later and people in the meantime will have forgotten about it. Yeah. I'm a little bit cynical there, but uh, I think that by and large, that's an important point. The story I remember about offsets uh, connected with Portugal was... Actually, it's two stories, I think. One, when we bought the submarines from the Germans, uh, maybe, no, 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 maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago. And more or less at the same time that we also bought some sort of armored personal carrier vehicle from uh, an Austrian uh, supplier. And the situation with the submarines was never very well explained in terms of the offsets, but it was clear that the same company, which I can't remember the name, was involved in some corruption scandals with offsets in Greece, more or less at the same time. So there's always this, let's say, impression or fog in Portugal about how probably the same thing happened there. Uh, but no one has actually put the finger and, uh, and I don't remember the cases making it through the courts. So my perspective of the offsets is that it's very negative. It's very negative because you effectively shoehorning into a contract something that is not connected with it and the company that is actually providing you the, with the main contract is not necessarily the best supplier to actually provide you with the offsets or actually making the offsets work in, in reality afterwards. Yes, well, if we can use examples, you mentioned Portugal, I will mention Belgium, which is a case I know very well. At the beginning of the 1990s, uh, we bought helicopters and we bought electronic countermeasure systems. And those two procurement were linked to a major corruption case that actually went to the courts and where I think a half dozen politicians at the time were actually banned from politics and 
punished for having been corrupted by the, the companies who were awarded the contract. So indeed, offsets are uh, a risk of corruption, not only in developing countries, but also in, uh, in developed countries. And yeah, if you read lots or if you read most of the uh, academic literature on, on offsets, you will see a very negative, very negative views on the, uh, well, they increase the cost of the equipment, the quality is substandard, there's a risk of corruption. On the other hand, you can find some authors who would say that, yes, but actually it's very difficult to measure the actual impact of the offsets because probably they will increase the cost of the equipment. But if the offset actually work in the sense of generating work or labor in the country, that could somehow balance itself. And the problem is that most people doing those analyses are either a little bit biased towards completely open economy and therefore as a principle against offsets or are, let's say, employed or working on making offset works. So they are a little bit biased for offsets. So it's a little bit difficult to actually come up with a clear conclusion, with the exception of the cases where there is corruption, like what we what we discussed before. One of the things that I've noticed in procurement in general in the EU over the last few years is a move towards trying to bring social clauses into procurement. And here in the UK, especially in Scotland and Wales, the regional governments have developed what they call community benefits, which in effect are not much different from offsets for general procurement. So for example, the textbook example is, okay, we want to build a school and we want God knows how many traineeships to be created and we want the, the local people to be employed in the in the actual building of the school. Irrespective of actually analyzing if all these measures are legal under EU law or not, just looking at the idea and the principle, one of the risks we have is A, we increase the complexity of the procurement, and B, as you highlighted, we may fall into the same traps that most people think offsets have fallen to, which is they may increase the cost of the main contract, the quality of the output of that offset is substandard, and they actually facilitate corruption because you can root the money instead of making the money purely in the accounts directly of the politicians, you can root it via companies which uh, magically are awarded the offset or awarded the, the, the work related with the offset. So is it the case that we are importing into general procurement a practice from defense procurement, which is something that people usually don't talk about? Yes, I think so. Probably it's unconscious. I don't think that people are saying themselves, oh, yeah, let's use these offset practices of defense procurement into, let's say, standard uh, procurement, public sector procurement. But, you know, that's something you hear more and more over the recent years. We should buy local, we should advantage our people, uh, mm -hmm. whomever our people is. Yes. But in your question, you have raised one of the biggest problem of offsets, because actually, I think one of the biggest problems of offsets is not necessarily that cost increase and so on, but it's how do you monitor offsets? How do you check that offsets are actually being carried out? And if you look at defense procurement, the larger countries have departments that can deal with that. And even then, 
it's very difficult to do. But if you start doing something similar, for instance, for local procurement, let's say that a town council is requesting that uh, the school, as you said, be built with a certain percentage of local labor. That sounds easy, but in practice, how do you actually check it? How do you actually define the value of this local labor? The local labor could be skilled labor, could be unskilled. So it's actually very complicated. That's something we see in defense procurement when we deal with offsets. And actually, I'm pretty sure that local contracting authorities or regional contracting authorities don't actually have the resources in terms of uh, knowledge and in terms of number of people to actually monitor that. So that's one of the biggest issues with offset, I think. I agree with you. I mean, bearing in mind my practice or my experience in practice dealing with um, local councils in three different member states, there's certainly a lack of resources. And by resources, I'm not talking only about capability, but also I'm talking about people and time of the people that deal with procurement to actually monitor the main contract, let alone extra stuff that needs to be delivered, for which probably there's no penalty included, at least for now that uh, we're just designing the first examples of uh, these kind of social clauses. And I suspect, and I, I remember a presentation I did at Procurement Week, maybe two or three years ago, precisely about social clauses and calling them offsets in general procurement. And one of my worries at the time was, and still is, that something like allocating traineeships to construction contract still makes a little bit of sense. And it's technically connected with the main contract and should be possible to monitor, if not actually give a financial value, at least monitor if it's happening or not. But yeah. what we're creating is a condition that companies and suppliers are going to become a lot more creative as time goes on and just going to come up with ever more complex community benefits or social clauses like it happened in the offsets. I mean, if you look at the offsets nowadays in comparison with 30 years ago or so, they are more and more disconnected from the actual military procurement. So it's just no longer a question, for example, of ensuring that the submarines or the helicopters are built locally. It's actually areas that have nothing to do with, with the main contract, like ensuring that uh, the textile industry, and this is a real example, the textile industry in that country is going to receive orders from, let's say, the developed country that is selling the military equipment. So this kind of stuff may well seep in or seep out into social considerations in general public procurement. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that's, well, it becomes more and more problematic because if we now go back to the the legal issue, the more you move away from the subject matter of the contract, the more or the less legal it is from an EU law point of view. And as I said, in, in the defense sector, we have that big exemption, Article 346, but that one as well can only be used if the, the measures taken have no impact on the competition in the uh, market for civil products. So the more you move away from the subject matter of the contract, first of all, the more difficult it becomes to justify that from a legal point of view, but also the more difficult it becomes to monitor. If you're buying a submarine, the people working in the procurement team for that submarine should know procurement law, should know submarines, should know shipyards. But 
how are they going to be able to monitor the example you mentioned, the return on or the contracts on the textile industry? So it becomes more and more complicated to monitor and to implement, actually. And why would they care? I mean, yes. Oh, yeah. Actually, I mean, their job is to make sure that the submarines or the helicopters are built to the specification. Whatever yeah. happens with the other contracts, it's actually not probably not even in their radar. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So I think we have time for a couple of more questions. Uh, so let's bring the discussion back to the book before we, we keep on going on, um, on a sidetrack. I quite liked one of the chapters of your book in terms of the title that you've adopted for it, which is called the Matrioska doll of four legal relationships. What do you mean by this? <laughs> yeah, actually, it goes back to something I said a little bit before. People see collaborative defense procurement as one thing one big entity, one big concept. If you look at the uh, the Defense and Security Directive 2009-81, there's an exclusion there for collaborative defense procurement programs. But actually, if you look at a collaborative procurement program, it looks a little bit like a, a matryoshka doll, you know? It looks like a doll, but when you open it, the first thing you see is the the law that applies to the decision of a participating state to participate in a specific program. That's the first door. And then there's a second door, which is the relationship between the participating states. That's, as I said, public international law. That's a second door. Mm -hmm. And then you have the public procurement law of the entity managing the program, which is currently more and more an international organization, such as the European Defense Agency or OCAR or a NATO, uh, a NATO organization. So the procurement law that they apply, that's the third door. And then the fourth door is the law applicable to the contract itself, to the interpretation and application of the contract. In public procurement law, it's in domestic public procurement law, it's usually easy because the law defines which uh, law is applicable. In collaborative program, because there are many countries involved, it's not that clear. Sometimes it's English law, sometimes, well, I've been working on a, on a program where the um, working language is English. All the contracts are written in English. None of the participating state is a native English-speaking state. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes... <laughs> Coming from a UK legal background, let's mm-hmm. say, when I started attending those meetings, I was telling them, yeah, but what you're writing there is is wrong from a legal point of view. It doesn't mean <laughs> what you what you wanted to say. And they were like, oh, okay, but we've been writing that for the last 10 years, so we cannot change it now. Otherwise, it would seem as if we would be uh, changing the meaning of what we were meant to say. I was like, yeah, okay. But so you have that matryoshka doll of four legal relationships and actually, when I give classes or lectures on the subject, I now come up with my little doll and I take the little <laughs> puppets from uh, one after the other. People usually remind, remember that. And in addition, it gave me the opportunity to, uh, instead of putting a big fighter aircraft on the cover of my book, it gave, just gave me the opportunity of putting just four Matryoshka dolls on the picture on the front of my book. So that's more original than most uh, defense procurement books, let's say this way. That explains the cover of the book, because I look at the book and said, why did they pick Matryoshka dolls to be on the cover of the book? But now it makes perfect sense, because it actually there's an analogy there, and there's an uh, allegory there about 
how they work within the field that you're writing about. Exactly. Okay, one final question. What about your future work? Do you want to do more research in this area or are you just going to close the profitable book on research in defense procurement and just apply it? Probably on collaborative defense procurement, I think I've gone as far as I could, specifically on collaborative defense procurement. It might be worth coming back to it in, an, in a few years and see how things have been evolving. I know from my involvement with some of the international organizations like the European Defense Agency, the steps are being taken to improve the way it is managed. So it would be worth taking a look back at it in a couple of years, let's say. Now on defense procurement, there are still lots of things to be done. And the, the European Commission is currently reviewing the applicability of, uh, well, the effectiveness, let's say, of the Defense and Security Directive 2009-81. So things are probably going to move in the next couple of years. So that would be still worth investigating. And anyway, I'm dealing with day-to-day -day practice on defense procurement at the Belgian Armed Forces. So... Uh, I hear more and more things and I get more and more ideas on new books and uh, new articles <laughs> and those kind of things. <laughs> well, I think that's a very good way to actually finish the interview on. Um, so, Baudouin, thank you very much for your time and uh, making yourself available and going through a number of hoops to actually be able to, to record a podcast. Thank you for this opportunity, Pedro. That was a very nice, very interesting discussion. You can find me at my blog, tells.eu, or on Twitter, where I use two handles, at Detic for general discussion and at Public Procure for public procurement-related topics. As ever, I'm very grateful for the support of the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Awards, which made possible this project. If you like the show, it will be really helpful if you could rate it on iTunes, helping others finding it. Till next time. <laughs>